worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Thank you so much for joining us for this very important CNCR case discussion about a diagnosis that remains grossly underappreciated. In true Cardio Nerds fashion, this very much is a multi-institutional collaboration with a case discussion provided by UCSD Fellows, Drs. Antoinette Burrs and our ambassador, Dr. Patrick Azkarade, with guest host, fellow ambassador from Scripps Clinic, Dr. Christine Shen, and ECPR provided by renowned expert in the field, Dr. Milan Desai from the Cleveland Clinic. As we meander through this case, leading up to the final diagnosis, consider the following riddle. I cure disease, I cause disease. The people I touch were old friends. Even decades later, I stay with them. I see right through you, straight into your heart. My gifts may be forgotten, but we're never far apart. What am I? The answer to this riddle is the diagnosis for this case. Remember, everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description, and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. And now... Let's get nerdy. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit Goyal here with you for fabulous CNCR. Let's take a trip to the beautiful city of San Diego, where we're going to hear about a great case from UCSD. But first, we're going to bring on a guest host, our Cardio Nerds ambassador from the Scripps Clinic, Dr. Christine Shen. Do you mind introducing yourself? Amit, thank you so much. So my, my name is Christine Shen. I am from Los Angeles. And I did uh, medical school at Loma Linda, residency and fellowship at Scripps Clinic. And I'm just so excited to be back here with you guys. Just being here and talking to fellow cardio nerds, it's just, it makes me so excited. It's just so much fun. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, Christine, this is Dan Amador here, by the way. It is amazing having you back. A super treat. We've been looking forward to a long time. And we are here with some new first-time Cardio Nerds amazing guests, and that would be Patrick and Antoinette. Patrick, Antoinette, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hi, Dan. Thank you. My name is Patrick uh, Scottathy. I am originally from Miami, Florida. I went to medical school at the University of Miami, did my residency training at UCSF, and now at UC San Diego for my cardiology fellowship. After this year, I'll be going to general cardiology with a focus in heart failure and imaging. And I'm here with one of my colleagues, Antoinette. I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, guys. I'm Antoinette Burrs. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow. I also am a fellow Floridian. Grew up in Florida and did my medical training there. I went to the University of Central Florida for medical school, then University of Washington in Seattle for residency before coming down the coast here to UCSD. I'm interested in advanced heart failure in the years to come, and I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Welcome, guys. It's such a pleasure to be back at my med school alma mater with you guys, UCSD. Before we dive into the hospital for a patient case, first take us to San Diego. Where do you guys want to hang out? So in San Diego, typically we would be either going on a hike or on a beach, uh, especially in the pandemic nowadays. Mainly what we do is outdoors. We're fortunate enough that San Diego is a very outdoor adventurous city. So there's a lot to do under the sun. I mean, we may even go to the beach after this. Who knows? <laughs> Do you have a favorite beach? Ooh, uh, good question. Probably one of the most fun beaches to get to is Black's Beach. It's a beach where you actually have to hike down the side of a mountain to get to. And it probably takes like 30 minutes down to get there. But once you do, you see these amazing epic cliffs and really like wide open California beaches and watching the sunset there is just so remarkable. So you're going to make us work for it. Yes, you have to work for it. You know, you can also hang glide down from the cliff, but I have not done that yet. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. And I will be super careful not to go near the cliff, especially when you're telling us some challenging cases that you're going to talk to us about. So why don't we dive right in and talk about a serious cardiology case? Certainly. And we're very excited for this case. I've, I've been talking to Ahmed about uh, this one for a few months, and it's 
a case that we presented at CATH conference and really, I wouldn't say blew everyone away, but everyone learned a lot from it. It's not something we typically see, but once we brought the awareness of it, it's one of those things that you see at once, and then you start seeing it, you know, over, over and over again. Right. So without further ado, we'll get started. This is a patient with a chief complaint of chest pain who was referred to our cardiology clinic. This is a 30-year-old man with a history of malignant thymoma diagnosed in 2006, complicated by myasthenia gravis and pulmonary metastases, status post two sternotomies for partial resections, uh, most recently 2010, and radiation. He's referred to our clinic for chest discomfort. So his history began uh, six months ago. He was in his usual state of health, but he started just feeling worsening fatigue. He initially attributed this to myasthenia gravis, but his neurologist evaluated him and did not think that's what it was. His symptoms were mild, though, so he kind of went along with his life, and he eventually also started developing some slight chest discomfort with exertion. It eventually worsened to where a month prior to presentation, while running, he reported experiencing what he described as quote-unquote lung burning. He said he used to be able to run more than a mile and now can barely run a quarter of a mile. So when he told his oncologist this, they were worried they got a CT chest, but fortunately that showed no new mets. And in fact, his plural metastases had decreased in size. But this didn't help explain what was going on. He complained of left chest soreness with minimal exertion. He had the chest pain radiating to both arms associated with dizziness and heavy breathing. He said sometimes it occurred at rest, but usually it was only with exertion. And he also reported these symptoms were associated with palpitations. His review of systems was otherwise unremarkable. He denied fevers, chills, changes in weight, orthopnea, PND, like swelling and syncope. But he wanted answers. So he messaged his uh, primary care doctor, actually. And he said, is there any way I can be tested on a treadmill and have my vitals taken? As I have said to doctors, while it can happen on its own, it's mainly cardiovascular exercise that induces chest pain and pressure. I'd be really curious as to what those look like compared to my regular readings. And then he ends by saying, I'll do any test in the book, please. So you can really get the sense that he wants answers and he needs help. And he may be even honing in on you know, what could be causing his symptoms. So Patrick, thanks for including his telephone message. You know, I can imagine chest pain in a 30-year-old, but we might say, oh, this is low risk to begin with because the patient is young and it may even be easy to blow it off when, you know, it's a telephone encounter, you're busy with your day, you've got 50 other things to do. But in his words, there is a, a, a sense of desperation, right? It literally says, I'll do any test in the book, please, with an exclamation mark. So with his sense of desperation, he's clearly reaching out for help. What did you guys make of this? How do you process this in your mind, you know, for this patient with this medical history? Yeah, I want to echo that concern there because right off the bat, one of the most striking things from the phone conversation was, you know, he's pleading for help. And he he is someone who's had a lifetime of disease. He's had cancer at 16, multiple sternotomies, radiation. He has myasthenia gravis. He's immunosuppressed. So for him to be concerned about a symptom, he's even honed in, as Patrick noted, that you know, he wants to get on a treadmill. He's worried about his cardiovascular symptom. That really catches my attention. And, you know, the bottom line is, you know, you have to listen to your patient who knows their body better than anyone. And this patient is worried. And now so am I. And as far as a differential, like you said, this is a young person with some features of typical and atypical chest discomfort. From the atypical side, I can say, you know, he has a history of malignancy. You have to wonder, is there recurrence? Is this a pulmonary embolism? He has massinia gravis. He's immunosuppressed. Is this an indolent infection? But taking a step back, we do need to think about typical chest pain in a young 30-year-old gentleman. And, and there, there is a nice differential for that. Yeah, we do have a way to think about a differential for chest pain in a young patient. And my differential includes, if you're thinking about obstructive coronary artery disease, uh, you could think about the usual risk factors such as smoking, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and diabetes. You think about tox, such as drugs like cocaine, um, methamphetamines that could be causing chest pain. Familial hypercholesterolemia would definitely increase your risk of obstructive CAD or an MI. You can also have uh, chest pain or an MI from paradoxical embolism, uh, for example, through a PFO, hypercoagulable states such as factor V lead-in, uh, as well as other embolic phenomena such as endocarditis or left atrial tumor. You can also have vasospasm contributing to chest pain in a young patient. Finally, and probably the most concerning thing for this patient who's young is his history of radiation. And 
what must be considered as radiation-associated cardiac disease. Patrick, thank you. You have walked us through a very logical way of, of thinking about it. You know, as, as doctors and especially through training, we're taught to go through a very comprehensive list, which is our differential diagnosis. Last time I was here, I was just starting as a first year. I am now in my second year and we're talking about what, what are some of the things that I think are different? And I think over my first year, what I realized is how I have thought about the chest pain rule out. And part of it, yes, is that very regimented list going through logically, making sure we don't miss anything. But I also realized that when I meet a patient, you know, just, just as I'm listening to the story and even before this telephone encounter, I find myself having a gut feeling. I don't know about you guys about what is this? You know, our question is, is this angina or not? Right. And so I, I was curious. I wanted to ask you guys just, just listening to this. What, what did you guys think? What was your gut telling you? Yeah. So our gut was telling us that this is angina. So it, it's interesting because he has so many different symptoms, right? He not only had chest discomfort, but he also described lung burning. He didn't just have chest pain. He also had palpitations and dizziness. And certainly you can have that with angina. However, when you have someone with a history of cancer and radiation, there's so much that it can be. It can be as Antoinette pointed out, and pneumonia could be worsening Mets, pulmonary fibrosis from radiation. And then even how radiation affects the heart, it can manifest as the symptoms that he's describing. It can affect the heart by causing uh, vasculopathy, CAD. It can cause pericarditis or pericardial constriction. It can cause conduction abnormalities, which could explain his palpitations. It can cause nobulopathies, could explain his shortness of breath that he was having if he has new AI or MR. And then finally, it can also affect the myocardium itself. It can cause someone to have diastolic dysfunction and heart failure, even overt systolic dysfunction. So when he was coming to us, yes, angina was number one on our list. But in someone with radiation, you really do have to think of them more uh, systemically because there could also be more than one thing going on and that can affect their treatment moving forward, which we'll get to. I 100% agree. You've talked about different complications. And so when I hear about this individual, you know, with a 30-year-old man, we all start thinking, oh, you know, he's 30, he's healthy. But in this patient, the second you give me your, you know, one-liner, I get scared. And to be honest, I, I hear this chest pain and I, I'm not thinking angina. I'm thinking, you, you know, you're, you're saying something about lung burning. You're, you're sore. You're dizzy. It, it's, you're fatigued. There's all these different symptoms, but, but I am scared. And so I think I would take it seriously and, and not blow it off. But I, you know, I'll be very honest and say angina would not be my top differential at this point. Now, Christine, these are great points. And going back to what you said earlier, Patrick, th that was a great differential in a young patient, young patient with chest pain. And obviously the differential that you were formulating there was more of one of an angina type. And as this patient kind of directed us towards his uh, symptoms occurring with cardiovascular stress and even asking for the stress test. So just to reiterate that differential, which was phenomenal and maybe just to add to it. So early premature CAD is something that we think about. Paradoxical embolism, as you brought up so nicely, toxins, vasospasm. And then in this patient, as you were honing in already on radiation-related vascular disease. But there's also other things to think about, such as coronary aneurysms, but also congenital abnormalities, such as Al-Kappa or anomalous takeoffs with compression, such as the right coming from the left side and going across and through the PA and the aorta, and different congenital abnormalities such as that could also present with exertional chest pain in the young patient. So really phenomenal differential and very important to go over, particularly in the young, who we may or may not have a tendency to potentially brush us off as not atherosclerotic disease and move on. 
but in fact, cycle back to the patient and meet him where he is. Because as Antoinette said earlier, when the patient is concerned, they know their body's the best. And we have to take that absolutely seriously. So this is a great start. And we've got a strong list of differential diagnoses. But Patrick, what, what else do we know about this patient? All right. So I'll give you some more background information about this patient. So concerning his malignant thymoma. So this was diagnosed 14 years prior to presentation. And at that time, he underwent a complete sternotomy for subtotal resection of these nets. Then four years after that, he was found to have recurrence of his thymoma. So he underwent a second complete sternotomy and resection of additional nets. At that time, he received radiation as well for a total of 60 grays of radiation delivered. Three years prior to presentation, he had, again, recurrence, received more radiation. He did not have surgery at this time. At that time, he was given 66 rays of radiation. And then the year of presentation, a few months before we saw him in clinic, he was found to have a malignant lung lesion with a radiation dose of 35 gray. So at this time, he received a total of 161 rays of radiation. And his course has been complicated by he's developed Ig deficiency, for which he's on IVIG. He also now has mycena gravis, for which he's on uh, rituximab. And he has a MAC lung infection, for which he's on Bactrim. For his social history, he's uh, married, two kids, he's employed. Prior to this, was functioning independently and exercising daily. However, that's now been significantly limited. No history of alcohol use, tobacco use, or drug use. In terms of family history, just notable for grandfathers with heart disease. That they had onset of heart disease around the age 60. And both parents have uh, hypertension. And in terms of medications, uh, the patient is on rituximab as well as Bactrim and Adderall. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's always important to look at the medication list. And we see that this gentleman is on Adderall. And so I'd wonder, you know, how long he's been taking it? Has he ever had symptoms? And there is an amazing Jack review about the cardiovascular complications that you can have from stimulant medication. And there are key points about the symptoms that he's experiencing. You can have palpitations, you can have fatigue, and, and, and he's having all this chest pain and pressure. And so I, you know, I would wonder to myself, is that possibly contributing to his symptoms? So looking at this Jack review, there's a nice central illustration going through some of the different physiologic changes that can happen when you take a psychostimulant. If we think about the sympathetic nervous system and what can happen with consistent chronic stimulation, uh, physiologically, you have an increased heart rate, an increased blood pressure, you get vasoconstriction, and, and that increases the potential for arrhythmias as well. And so the cardiovascular consequences that um, can happen are long-term hypertension, mortality, myocardial infarction, takasubos, arrhythmias, or, or even sudden cardiac death. We have so many patients on, on these medications. It, it's important for us to, to ask about, you know, how long they've been taking it and, and what kind of things that they've noticed. That's an excellent point, Christine. And I think it sometimes can be easy for us as cardiologists to really hone in on our organ system and perhaps ignore some medications that we don't think are necessarily related to GDMT, et cetera. So I think taking a close look and taking the patient in as holistically as we can is really important. And, you know, I, I, one question that I had had, you know, really reviewing this patient and thinking about him is we had discussed how much chest radiation he had received and it may be tempting to consider him treated. And he has this pretty extensive oncologic history and leave it at that. But we're going to talk about how important it is to think about radiation and how it does apply to the cardiovascular system. So, you know, Patrick, you mentioned that he received 161 total gray to the chest. What other things should we be thinking about when we hear a patient has had chest radiation? Does it stop there? Or what, what are some other key points? Yeah, it's a good question. I was very specific in mentioning the gray. I think retrospectively, we figured out that that is a very important unit to know when you hear that someone's had uh, radiation to the chest because the amount of radiation that you get, there is a linear association with radiation associated cardiac disease. And there is a threshold dose where the risk of radiation associated cardiac disease is very high. And that specific dose is uh, greater than 30 gray. Now, specifically, that's how much the heart is exposed to. It's not necessarily just the chest. 
But a lot of studies, mainly seen in uh, breast cancer patients, have seen that around this dose is when you start seeing the effects of that. But it's not just the dose. It, there are so many other factors that you have to worry about. In total, there's five parameters. One would be, yes, the net dosage, which would be a dose greater than 30 gray or a high dose of radiation fractions, which is greater than two grays a day. Number two would be the proximity of the heart to the radiation fields. For example, if you have an anterior radiation field or left chest radiation, or if the tumor is close to the heart, that would certainly increase your risk of damage to the heart, which makes sense. Third, which is interesting, is that if you have a very good prognosis for your cancer and you are young, then you are also more likely to experience these side effects. Usually, if you start radiation and you're younger than 50 years old, you're more likely to experience radiation-associated cardiac disease just by virtue that you're going to be alive longer to see these effects. The 70, 80-year-old patient getting radiation, probably you won't be seeing some of the coronary or valvular problems that arise from radiation. Number four that is important to consider is concomitant chemotherapy, specifically anthracyclines. Anthracyclines are interesting. Some people posit that perhaps they have a radiosensitizing effect on the myocardium. And perhaps this increases uh, the risk of damage to uh, radiation. So it's important to ask if they've received concomitant chemotherapy. And finally, just the presence of other cardiovascular risk factors. You know, it's things that we know that causes heart disease. So hypertension, hyperlipidemia diabetes, smoking. When I'm thinking about if someone's at risk for radiation-associated heart disease, those are the five things that come to mind. That's a great breakdown, Patrick. And if I hear you right, I guess you could break that down and divide it up into two bins, right? There are the patient-related factors and the treatment-related factors, right? The patient-related factors being young age, right? Just because they have a longer time to accumulate a jury and manifest it, as well as their other host of cardiovascular risk factors that would interact with the radiation exposure. And then there are the treatment-related factors like the dose, the location, concomitant chemotherapy. So again, we've had such a great discussion. Could it be Adderall? Could it be radiation-associated cardiac disease? Could it be a congenital coronary anomaly? Could it be a pulmonary embolism? We're still pretty broad, but when you saw the patient, what did he look like? And what was the initial basic evaluation that you performed to better understand and tease out why he was so anxious about his symptoms? Great. Yeah. So when we saw him, he looked well. He was afebrile. Blood pressure was 97 over 64 millimeters of mercury. His heart rate was 80 beats per minute. He was breathing 16 and sagging 94% on the mirror. General, no distress. His cardiovascular exam was notable for GVD less than 8 centimeters. He had a regular rate and rhythm, normal S1, S2, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. His lung exam was notable for decreased air movement, and he was noted to have bivasilar crackles. For the rest of the exam, you know, abdomen normal, extremities warm, well perfused, no edema, and his skin, he did have some uh, vitiligo. Labs notable for normal CBC, and for his BMP, his cranium was 1.13, which is his baseline, and for his cholesterol, it was 152, HDL was 52, LDL was 91, and triglycerides were 43. His A1C was 5%. You know, he, he used the term, any test in the book, please. So what kind of testing did you decide to do for him? Sure. So initially he had some tests that were ordered by his PCP before he was evaluated by us. This included a chest x-ray, which we see a median sternotomy, no masses appreciated here for fusion. Cardiac silhouette is normal. Notably, he doesn't have any calcifications in his aorta and it's pretty unchanged from his prior chest x-rays. Moving on to the EKG, which was performed. We see a normal sinus rhythm. His heart rate is around 80. He has a normal axis and normal intervals. Notably, there are no Q waves. There are T wave inversions in V1 and V2, which can be a normal variant in a young male. However, we will see that from a few years prior, he has an EKG and has an upright T wave in, in V2 there. But otherwise, no concerning conduction delays or changes that you might think could occur with radiation-associated cardiac disease. He also had an echocardiogram performed, which was noted to have a normal left ventricular size and function. His right ventricular size and function were also normal. He had normal pulmonary artery pressures with the RVSP of 24 millimeters. He did have some mild mitral valve regurgitation, which is new from his prior echo some years earlier. 
he did also have normal diastology and no evidence of constrictive pericardial disease. So I have a question for you guys that hopefully isn't too controversial. Do you order an echocardiogram for chest pain rollout? Great question, Christine. You know, I think an echocardiogram in this patient in the setting of some exertional, although some atypical chest pain and, and features is warranted, you know, it does help us with our prior differential. You know, if we thought he may have a pulmonary embolism or constriction or pericarditis, you know, we can, we can see features of that on echocardiogram. Also, if we ultimately pursue ischemic testing with a stress or exercise echo, it is good to have a baseline evaluation too. Although in a 30-year-old man, I can see, you know, how, how that is a, an excellent question and, and where to draw the line for imaging these patients. And then also a, an another point about knowing that this patient has received chest radiation some 14, 15 years earlier, there is a beautiful figure in the Jack paper by Dr. Desai that reviews appropriate surveillance in these patients. And it goes on to address that patients who have had prior chest radiation they require an annual history and physical, of course. We want to search and modify correctable risk factors as we do with all of our patients. However, if there are signs of radiation-associated cardiac disease, which I will say typically occurs from the coronary side about 10 years after radiation and in some with high risk factors like obesity and hyperlipidemia five years after radiation, and then the valvular disease, which is usually a few decades out from radiation, starting around 20 years. For these patients, we need surveillance imaging. And typically in the average healthy patient, they should have surveillance echocardiogram starting 10 years and with repeating the echo every five years. If you have risk factors, you want to start with echocardiogram earlier, around five years after radiation with the five-year interval. If there are signs, you know, and this, this patient was symptomatic, so needed some evaluation. But if, the, if there are signs of high degree risk factors or chest pain, you may also switch to stress echocardiography every five years as opposed to the traditional basic echocardiogram. You know, these patients are very interesting in the fact that since the radiation was so long in their history, one of the hardest parts about diagnosing radiation-associated cardiac disease is just, you know, on our side, keeping it on our differential and in the forefront of our mind, because with such a prolonged history, we can kind of miss this diagnosis. And, and in fact, we think a lot of radiation-associated cardiac disease is underdiagnosed because there's a lack of association there in these patients. An important teaching point uh, when you're thinking about the differential for these patients is that for radiation-associated cardiac disease, Frequently, you'll experience coronary artery disease prior to any valvulopathies. The coronary artery disease can develop within 10 years, uh, whereas the valvulopathies most develop 20 years later down the road. And yeah, for this patient, the chest pain itself would not have necessitated just the echo, especially in a 30 year old man. Maybe we would have done other things. However, the differential is so broad and with the radiation. You really want to utilize multimodality imaging to try to diagnose everything and make sure you're not missing any of those five complications you can get from radiation. So in this case, ECHO is indicated to screen, diagnose, and monitor radiation-associated cardiac disease. It's the first imaging technique. Yeah, no, these are great points. And you know, we're approaching this gentleman both as what would you do in the evaluation of chest pain in all comers, maybe in chest pain in all comers who are 30 years of age. But he does have an important historical feature of having had exposure to these monstrous doses of chest radiation. And so you're thinking, what could be the consequences of that? How could they be related to this patient? And one of the tenets that we are learning for radiation-associated cardiac disease is just to have a very low pretense probability and a low threshold to do uh, a thorough evaluation because these patients can have a, a variety of symptoms related to injury of any cardiovascular tissue, right? That of the coronaries, muscle, valves, the electrical system, pericardium, the surrounding structures like the lungs. And so in our evaluation, we have to be broad because the injury was broad and the consequences will be broad. And so you, you certainly did injustice. But, you know, the echo wasn't terribly revealing. Where did you go next with the evaluation? Yeah, so just to summarize where we're at. So this was a 30-year-old man. He has a history of thymoma. He's had radiation. He's had two prior sternotomies. Now coming in with the chief complaint of the chest pain with exertion, essentially. 
EKG showing new T-wave inversions, the echo was pretty much unrevealing. And at this point, we want to take a look at his coronary arteries. We think that obstructive coronary artery disease is highest on our differential, and he's most at risk for this. Something that also made us more worried for coronary artery disease is we actually reached out to the radiation oncologist to clarify how much of the radiation he received was actually delivered to his heart. What we learned made us more concerned. So even though he received about 160 gray total, the total delivered to the heart was not 160. However, it was still high. The mean dose to the heart in one year, for example, like in 2017, was just eight gray. However, the total dose in just that year was 40 gray to the LAD. So we learned that there was one specific part of the heart that received a significant amount of radiation. And that is a very concerning part of the heart that would worry us for coronary artery disease. So it was at this time that we decided to pursue imaging of the coronary arteries. Now, the question is, would we do at this time we were considering a coronary CT angiogram or proceeding straight to a left heart catheterization with coronary angiography? Now, it's not wrong to have gone straight to left uh, a left heart cath. However, you can learn so much from a coronary CT, and you can also do surgical planning with the information that you get from that CT. For example, a coronary CT, it's great. It has a very good negative predictive value. So in this case, if his is negative, although I don't, we didn't suspect it would be, if it was negative, we would prevent him getting an unnecessary cath. And cath in his case is not benign. He may have more calcifications in his aorta which would increase his risk for emboli and stroke. So if we could avoid any unnecessary procedures, that would be ideal. And additionally, the coronary CT will be able to show us arteries outside of the heart. For example, in a very calcified aorta called a porcelain aorta, this would prevent us from safely performing a cross-clamping during bypass surgery, which may be needed if he needs revascularization. Additionally, you could look at the lima and see if that's patent. In most patients with radiation-associated cardiac disease, the LIMA can be used. However, in few patients, it's atretic and also diseased if it is exposed to radiation. And finally, you can see other parts of the lung. You can see if there's pulmonary fibrosis and worsening fats. So overall, a coronary CT would be part of the multimodality imaging that you would use to assess these patients. And in this case, we pursued that prior to just going straight to a left heart catheterization. You said something really interesting about the concern for the LAD. And I think it's worth just mentioning because it, it requires some understanding of the, the anatomy of the coronary arteries. And there actually is a higher risk for certain parts of certain arteries, characteristically the left main, the proximal LED, or the right coronary artery because they're actually more anterior and central in the mediastinum. So they're typically exposed to higher doses of radiation compared with more peripheral, lateral, or posterior areas. And so even before getting the coronary CT, we can actually make an educated guess about where he would have disease. That's a great point, Christine. And you know, certainly lesions in those vessels are more prominent in radiation-associated cardiac disease. And also they tend to be osteal lesions, which are even more concerning and, and high-grade when you think about a proximal or, or osteal lesion. So the results of the coronary CTA, we found that he had multifocal severe stenosis in the proximal LAD, as well as in the first and second diagonal branches. There was an occlusion of the proximal first obtuse marginal branch and also possibly a small ramus branch was seen. They actually report that the stenosis is likely secondary to radiation. He was also found to have severe disease in the lima, and then he had post-surgical radiation changes consistent with the thymoma resection. I am absolutely blown away by this coronary CT. You walked us through why a coronary CT can be helpful and the different things that it can show, and you were absolutely right. It did not disappoint. This coronary CT provides us with an answer as to why our patient is feeling this way. And it's a very impressive lesion if you're looking at this CT. 
with you know a severe stenosis of the LED. And I I have I get so emotional and so excited to share this with the patient to say, we have an answer now and and talk about what the next steps are. So what was that conversation then like? And what was the next step for you? Yeah, so he definitely was very relieved to have an answer. Obviously a mixed bag when you get results like this, because on one hand, it's another problem to add to your medical history. However, it's an answer and we have options to help his symptoms. So I think overall, him and his family were, like I said, relieved and just kind of looking forward to the next step, which in this case, we did pursue the left heart cath with the coronary angio specifically to better characterize the lesions and to get a better look at the lima for vascularization if that would be potentially uh, usable. So we pursued that and the cath confirmed what we saw in the coronary CT. It showed a normal left main bifurcating into the LAD and the circ. The LAD showed a proximal LAD lesion with 90% focal stenosis and another uh, stenosis in the mid LAD of 90% that was also focal. The proximal left circ showed 40% stenosis and was uh, diffusely diseased. And the RCA uh, was dominant with no significant disease. We did image the subclavian artery, which showed disease, as well as the lima, which was occluded. So in conclusion, we found uh, that he had one vessel obstructed CAD involving the proximal LAD, as well as moderate disease in the left circumflex artery. And finally, also an atretic lima. So with all of that in mind, then we started thinking about, you know, what potential options we have to treat his lesion. And I think regarding the approach to revascularization in patients who have had chest radiation, this is a very challenging decision and takes considerable preoperative planning to fully assess how much damage the chest has sustained from radiation. Because not only is the heart being affected, but the lungs, the mediastinum, you know, the lymphatics, thoracic lymphatics. So all these come into play when you're considering sending someone for an open heart surgery. It is recommended to have kind of this very extensive preoperative evaluation, including the multi-detector CT imaging that Patrick had mentioned previously. Also, you know, we need to better evaluate the valves and make sure that if he has indication for revascularization, if he also has valvulopathy, that should be addressed at the same time because the goal in these patients is a one-time sternotomy. You don't want to be going into a hostile chest with risk of poor wound healing and dehiscence because you have such fibrotic tissue, your vasculature has been fried from radiation and, and you worry about wound healing, you certainly don't want to have two sternotomies. So, you know, surgery for these patients are often a little bit on the later side than the typical valvular surgical repairs that we see. But because of all these things that we must consider, you know, we, we also did previously discuss the porcelain aorta, highly calcified aorta, which, you know, to put someone on bypass, you can be able to safely cross clamp that vessel, which may not be feasible if, if you're highly calcified. So those are all certainly important to take into consideration. And, you know, there's been no head-to-head trials of cabbage versus PCI. However, you know, PCI is generally preferred in this patient population. They even go on to say that even with proximal LAD disease with a syntax score less than 22, or even left main disease with a syntax score of less than 32, PCI is still preferred because of this chest radiation. Yeah. So for our patient, there is an additional concern. Um, he, he did have the radiation. So he already has an increased risk of, you know, complications from an open heart surgery, but he also has an additional risk. He has these two sternotomies already. So I, I can imagine what a cardiothoracic surgeon would think about that increased risk for surgery and n- not only the post-op complications, but just the, the difficulty of having to go in, do a reduced sternotomy and perform the surgery itself. Did you guys end up having a CT surgery consultation and what did the patient think about PCI versus cabbage? Yeah, it's an excellent point, Christine. You know, in this patient, he had the two part sternotomies. He is immunodeficient, being on, you know, immunosuppressants. And the internal, the lima was also not an option. So for all of these reasons, we did not think he would be a great candidate for surgery. And because of the hostile chest and 
it did not seem ideal. However, we did consult CT surgery. We work very closely with them and we do approach these sorts of cases, um, a heart team approach. And we got them involved just so that we can all agree that PCI would be the best option, but with the idea that uh, we would likely be pursuing PCI. You know, you're getting a lot of us pretty excited because, you know, Dan, Christy, myself, all enjoy fixing things and we're in the business of fixing things and making patients feel better. But, right, you know, just before we get to the fixing, I just want to revisit the diagnosis. You know, we have these typical and atypical symptoms that potentially sound like angina and we found obstructive coronary disease. Was there any doubt in anyone's mind that this was not for radiation? You know, and this young gentleman without a lot of other risk factors, his lipid panel was not too remarkable. His A1C is normal. There was family history of coronary disease, but not, you know, this malignant, very early age coronary disease. As far as I can tell from the angiogram and the IFAS run, this isn't a very calcified type of coronary stenosis. And the way you approach it, you so very nicely outlined all the reasons why this patient would be at risk for radiation associated cardiac disease. So just to have this be clear in everyone's mind, do you feel confident that this was a manifestation of radiation associated cardiac disease and we should manage him as such? So we do, you know, from learning from this case, I have developed an illness script for patients with radiation-induced uh, CAD. And in my mind, I think of a young patient with a history of chest radiation, typical angina, and no other significant risk factors for ischemic heart disease. And he also had, did have angiographically severe proximal or osteal disease, which fell within the range of the radiation field that he received, which was greater than 40 gray. The data shows that you can start initiating atherosclerosis with just doses of 0.5 gray in that area. So certainly his presentation fit with radiation-induced CAD, and we felt comfortable calling it that. If you want additional support for that, you can also look at the type of lesion itself. And the type of lesion that you see in radiation-induced CAD is different from the regular atherosclerotic lesion. They tend to be long, smooth, concentric, and tubular, and they tend to be in the osteoproximal regions. Sometimes you can actually miss them on coronary angiography because they look so smooth. So it is really important if you're considering this diagnosis, do an intravascular ultrasound and really take a look at the lesions because the IVUS can reveal significant neointimal hyperplasia, similar to what can be seen in CAB, which can be missed on angiography. So in this case, we did do IVUS as well, which we've attached these images. And we did confirm overall, not just his clinical presentation, but also the types of lesions we're seeing and the anatomy all fit with radiation-induced coronary artery disease. That's beautiful, Patrick. And, you know, our woes for EMR aside, the EMR is designed to transmit information. And so when he walks away from this clinical encounter, you know, his one-liner won't be 30-year-old man with a history of CAD status post-PCI. It would be 30-year-old man with a history of thymoma, status post-resection and radiation, comma, radiation-associated cardiac disease, comma, CAD status post-PCI. Because that will help contextualize possible future presentations. And, and as Antoinette taught us earlier, Sometimes the you know other manifestations with valvular heart disease particularly may manifest later than the coronary disease. And so, you know, we would certainly be doing him a favor by making this diagnosis and transmitting that information to EMAR. But but here you are, he's got symptoms, he's desperate for the diagnosis you gave him and management. What did you guys do to help him out? Yeah, so PCI was pursued and he received one stent in the proximal LAD and another in his mid-LAD non-overlapping stent. He was discharged on dual antiplatelet therapy, as well as a torvastatin. And we saw him in clinic about a month later, and he had improvement in his symptoms and getting back to his regular exercise. Very relieved. So just to summarize, I find this case so satisfying. We have a young gentleman who has been through so much already, coming in, feeling quite terrible and not knowing what's going on, um, ready for any kind of test there is. We walked him through different testing first with a coronary CT based on his high pretest probability for a cardiovascular disease. We, we find significant stenosis in his LAD and we're walking through the, the different ways of, of fixing it and eventually are able to give him a nice outcome through percutaneous coronary intervention. What are some of the takeaways that you guys had from this case? I would say my main takeaways would be that when you 
are treating patients with a history of media stymal radiation, always remember to ask how much radiation was given and was the heart exposed? And if you don't know that answer, you can reach out to the radiation oncologist because they will have that information. The next important teaching point to walk away with is the specific dose. Now, your dose is significantly increased when the heart receives more than 25 to 30 gray, but always remember it can occur at lower doses as well. And then finally, for revascularization, when in a patient with radiation-induced coronary artery disease, we do recommend a heart team approach, but in most cases, PCI will be preferred over cabbage. And that radiation-associated cardiac disease can manifest years and decades following radiation exposure to the chest and is associated with high morbidity and mortality. So it's crucial to have an awareness of this, keep this in the forefront of your mind, and and maintain the appropriate surveillance for these patients. And so when someone has a diagnosis of an oncologic diagnosis and had chest radiation, like Patrick said, we have to you know dig a little bit deeper and, and take that into our own wheelhouse and be responsible for that surveillance. These are uh, really amazing points and critical points. And Definitely, definitely for everybody out there, don't be afraid to phone a friend. You could always reach out to the providing radiation oncologist or if they're unavailable, your radiation oncologist to get their take on whether or not the degree of radiation that this patient would have, you know, received would potentially manifest in the way that they're presenting now, because sometimes it may feel like it's not in your wheelhouse and feel foreign and the language, you know, the amount of grays may feel very distant to you. Not like, let's say, dosing for Lasix, for example, right, which feels very familiar to you. But there are always friends out there that are willing to help you arrive to the diagnosis and take care of your patient in the best of possible ways. So with that, I would really like to thank Patrick Antoinette. You guys did an amazing job. The chemistry is fantastic. And Christine, as guest host, Wow. Thank you so much for your contributions to this episode. This has been an amazing discussion about a very challenging clinical situation for a, and a, for a patient that we were able to help and now monitor in the future for other things and help him get through his life. So thank you all for coming here. And, and I'm glad we didn't fall off any cliffs because that would have been devastating as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a really, really great treat for us. Yeah, that was great, Dan. Thanks for having us. Dan, Amin, Christine, this was a great case to discuss with everyone. And you know where to find us off the cliffs, <laughs> gliding onto the beach. I've got to say, Black's Beach never looked uh, so beautiful from uh, paragliding here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's such an honor. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm thrilled. This was a blast. I learned a ton and it was awesome. Thank you, guys. Friends, it is my distinct honor to introduce the ECPR expert for this case, Dr. Milan Desai. Dr. Desai is Professor of Medicine and the Director of Clinical Operations at the Cleveland Clinic. He is a multimodality cardiovascular imaging specialist with expertise in several areas. He is Director of the Center for Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, the Medical Director of the Center for Aortic Diseases, and the Medical Director for the Center for Radiation Heart Disease. Dr. Desai, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much to the Cardio Nerds for inviting me to, to discuss this very interesting case from San Diego. Let's talk about the case in particular, but more importantly, I wanted to talk about the overall concept of radiation-associated heart So briefly, the way I summarize the case in my little brain is as follows. Here's a 30-something-year-old young gentleman with a past history of thymola that has unfortunately recurred, requiring invasive sternotomy-based therapies, as well as previous radiation. And if I recall correctly, he got a humongous dose of radiation to the chest, more than 60 gray. That was then. Then life took over. The way I understand it, he grew up, he's had a few additional brushes with the healthcare processes in California requiring sternotomy, resections, etc. Just most recently, the patient ended up with what ostensibly sounded like cardiac chest pain. And then the conversation, rightfully so, happened around what we've been taught of a lot, which is pretest likelihood of cardiac disease. You know, when you get a call from a 30-something-year-old complaining of chest pain, however anginal it sounds, most of us our first instinct 
based on all the years of education we have is, ah, this young guy, the pretest likelihood is not even zero. It probably is in the negatives. So more than likely, this is non-cardiac test pain. Let's do something else. But there are some conditions, prior radiation exposure being one of those, where the guards should instantaneously go up. And they did, rightfully so. This patient was taken seriously. Appropriate testing was done. And atomic testing was performed, which identified that this person, indeed, despite his young age, had obstructive coronary artery disease, which resulted in the rightful intervention with PCI. And at the end, all's well, that ends well. The patient is doing good. He's symptomatically feeling better. He's on appropriate therapy. So the good news is all the right things were done. And I must commend the folks in San Diego to do what was absolutely the right thing to do. Now, there are a few things that I want to talk about as it pertains to a patient like this in the broad spectrum of radiation-associated cardiovascular disease. And how do I think about it? First of all, let me tell you, this is one of those diseases that, you know, back in my residency and fellowship, I'd never heard about it. Uh, or, you know, you read about briefly, but, but you don't see too many of these patients. And, you know, it was in one of my outpatient clinics, and I was with one of my former fellows, Willis Wu. He was a chief fellow here, and now he's in North Carolina. And we were looking at a couple of patients that we ended up seeing, and one thing led to the other. And we got very interested in it and started, you know, see one, do one, teach one scenario. We started doing research in it. And a few papers later, I would like to think we understand a fair bit about it. So, you know, curiosity, I would never, never, ever give up curiosity. I'll always ask the appropriate question at the right time, okay? And it could be your outpatient clinic. So, uh, with that as a segue, uh, thoracic radiation, it is very effective for mediastinum and thoracic cancer. You know, the mortality of these diseases used to be high, but the thoracic radiation that is typically given for mediastinal and thoracic cancer has been a tremendous boon to these patients because back in the day, the mortality was significantly high from the cancer. But because of these radiation, a lot of these patients are now able to survive a lot longer after they got their radiation. But in life, there's this law of unintended consequences. So you give these folks a lot of radiation, get them past their cancers. But now, Years later, what we are dealing is the spectrum of radiation heart disease. So what is radiation-associated heart disease? It is, in one simple term, I would consider this uh, pancarditis. Pancarditis meaning anything that a beam of this heavy dose of radiation touches could be impacted by this. So if you look at the chest, you are looking at the chest wall, the muscles, the lungs the pericardium, the heart muscle, the coronary arteries, all the valves, the aorta, the conduction system. If it involves the carotids, then carotids, thyroid gland, anything can and will be impacted by this. So you have to think big when you're tackling a person with radiation heart disease. The bottom line is, what is the underlying mechanism? Is fibrosis. Whatever organ that is impacted, there is a heightened propensity for fibrosis, and that is what drives a lot of the pathophysiology. Now, a lot has been written about its prevalence, but I will tell you, the prevalence is highly difficult to ascertain. And every paper you look at, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Now, there's some data that suggests about 7.4% per gray in terms of ischemic events in Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, breast cancer survivor. But I would like to say, Take it with a grain of salt. Now, this is disease in young folks. What are some of the risk factors for radiation associated heart disease? Obviously, younger the age, the longer the tail. So you have to worry a younger age is a risk factor. Other cardiovascular risk factor, that's adding jet fuel to the fire, essentially. Prior types of how we used to give radiation without shielding or cobalt as a source. 
very high dose, more than 30 grade. In this patient's case, he got above more than 60 grade. A tumor next to the heart, you cannot avoid the heart. Anterior or left chest radiation and concomitant chemotherapy like anthracyclines. These are some of the broadly recognized risk factors. How do I look at a patient with potential radiation heart disease? It has to be multidisciplinary approach for diagnosis and risk stratification. Bottom line is, the first and foremost thing is what? Anticipation. You get radiation, mega doses of radiation. You have to know that in a decade or two from now, there is a very high likelihood of you developing radiation-associated heart disease or cardiovascular disease. So patient and physician education and clinical follow-up is important. Then, you know, uh, echocardiography is key, looking for bowel disease, LV function, etc. Ischemia evaluation is crucial, like in this patient's case. And we will talk briefly about that in a second. Good quality CAT scan that looks at the lungs, that looks at the porcelain aorta, as well as that may potentially look at coronary artery disease is important. It is absolutely important to have anatomic understanding of the coronary arteries. And we will talk about that in a second. I am a big stickler for understanding invasive hemodynamics and the threshold to do a simultaneous assessment for constriction restriction. My threshold is very low. I always look for PFTs and uh, diffusion lung capacity as well as depending upon where the radiation was, you need to look at carotid arteries. An important thing, if you are going to revascularize these patients surgically, you have to make sure the internal mammary artery is not atretic from the radiation. I've seen patients in whom somebody did an IMA and then it doesn't take and you are back to square one. So valves, any one of the valves can be impacted, but the most common it seems is the aortic valve, we are seeing more and more. Another thing being noticed years ago was this aortomitral curtain. So that is the area between aortic and the mitral valve. It tends to get thickened and calcific. It is a peculiar finding in radiation heart disease. And now our fellows in techs, they recognize that instantaneously. I remember the day when, you know, six, seven years ago, that was not indeed the case. Patients can present with AS, I mean, with mixed Disease, that is the most common, mixed single-valve disease, mixed multi-valve disease. I've seen the full spectrum here, and and that ends for a challenging diagnostic issue. But as I said, echo, a thorough, good quality echo is essential. Each and every one of these folks, your antenna needs to be high with regards to ruling out pericardial disease. And a lot of these patients tend to have constriction or restricted cardiomyopathy. The other, obviously, some patients may present with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and strain on echocardiography may have a potential value. Important thing is a lot of these patients tend to have aggressive early onset coronary artery disease similar to the patient in, in question here. And a lot of times this happens to be very proximal osteal disease. So left main disease, proximal RCA disease, these are crucial to look out for. And anytime you're dealing with left main disease, you have to be careful about a false negative stress test. Hence, in my book, I generally try not to rely on a stress test in these patients, especially if the person is symptomatic and you put them on a stress test. And if they have proximal left main significant disease, you are putting that person definitively in harm's way. The other I alluded to is Look for big vascular disease, so carotid and porcelain aorta, because that may have an issue as it relates to surgical planning, etc. Pulmonary evaluation cannot underscore the importance of that. A lot of people end up getting in trouble because of suboptimal evaluation or suboptimal understanding of their pulmonary status. Always have to establish expectations downstream from a procedure that their electrical system can be at risk and they are at a higher risk for pacemaker. I have multiple patients. In fact, I have a patient from San Diego who, whose primary issue is just electrophysiology issues. And you know, the young guy ended up needing a pacemaker. All his valves look okay so far. So what do the outcome studies show? So we have published a fair bit in this. One of the earliest papers we published compared the outcomes of these patients in a two-to-one matching undergoing cardiac surgery. And to our huge surprise, what we found was 
despite age, gender, height, and type of surgery matching, the outcomes in the radiation heart disease group were twice as bad compared to the normal population undergoing the same type of surgery. Doesn't matter what your STS score or Euro score was. In fact, Euro and STS score are suboptimal in risk stratification in these patients. Another important thing, which also is very relevant in this patient we found in our studies, is cardiac reoperation is terrible. With radiation heart disease patients, if they need heart surgery again, a reoperation, their outcomes are significantly worse than first time operation. That's why when you are selecting a patient, at least in our practice, we try to do a complete surgical job one time and we proactively tell patients that they have one shot, we need to get it right. So fix everything that needs to be fixed. The other thing, what we have found is we have written papers on outcomes of mitral valve surgery following radiation-associated surgery, TAVR versus SAVR. Bottom line is these patients, you know, the group of TAVR patients with radiation and without radiation, the radiation group does worse. Surgical AVR obviously does far worse in radiation patients compared to non-radiation patients. What about revascularization coronary? We've published a study where we looked at Grant Reed, one of our now junior staff, when he was a fellow, we published this paper which showed PCI in patients with the radiation, their outcomes were far worse compared to PCI without radiation. And in a follow-up study where we have shown that cabbage versus PCI, isolated PCI basically did reasonably good. In well-selected isolated cabbage versus isolated PCI, the outcomes were fairly similar in this population of radiation heart disease. So the other point we have learned the hard way is if your patient has constrictive pericarditis that is due to radiation, your outcomes of a pericardiectomy are significantly worse. Hence, what we do is we do a very careful assessment for radiation-associated constrictive pericarditis. Now, as I've alluded to, the best thing that needs to happen is prevention and general screening, recognizing early. Basically, you know, the way I think about it is as follows. Today, the radiation oncology protocols are so much more refined that if everybody's doing their jobs right, then in a decade or two, the problem will disappear. However, what we are dealing with today are patients from 15, 20, 25 years ago, and those patients are not going away anytime soon. So at this point of time, we are going to continue to see these patients. But it is important to institute screening algorithms uh, for early recognition of radiation heart disease. And different guidelines, different consensus documents recommend that you should have screening echo five years after exposure in high-risk patients and in 10 years after exposure in others. And some form of proactive coronary evaluation should happen at five to 10 years. You heard my bias. I generally go with some form of anatomic screening in these patients for coronary artery disease. Now, I'm going to suggest that you check out a paper I wrote in JAK, which was a JAK expert scientific panel. It was published in 2019, around August or so which talks about all the things that I'm talking about. This was published with a group of experts from around the world. The most important thing is referral to a center of excellence is crucial. Every patient is different and you need to work him or her on their own merit. Now, just because you have radiation heart disease does not make you a non-surgical candidate. Just because you have radiation heart disease doesn't mean you straight away go for talent. There's more to life than that, which is where shared decision-making heart team approach is, is absolutely important. In my little brain, what I start off with is how bad are the lungs and the aorta. If they are bad, they have high-risk findings, then we are thinking about the various structural options. If there is multiple valves involved, then, you know, fixing one and leaving the others may definitely not solve the problem. So, this is where heart team approach is, is absolutely important to, to take into account. For isolated aortic valve disease, TAVR is a fantastic option in these radiation heart disease patients. And one strategy that we use nowadays is if the patient presents to us with severe aortic stenosis and the other valves are not that advanced, the coronary artery disease is not that advanced. What we've 
done more and more often is we we'll do a tower now and then give this patient a few years, maybe a decade. And by that time, the other valves deteriorate and we can offer them a one-time sternotomy. This helps with our principal mantra of trying to avoid cardiac reoperations. And, you know, the tower outcomes, they are not as good as the remainder of the population. In fact, in a paper that we published in 2018 in circulation, the annualized mortality was around 8% per year in our first close to 100 tower patients with radiation heart disease. So this is a rapidly evolving field. Now, I'm not a heart surgeon, but I've mentioned some surgical pearls that we've learned over the years. Standard surgical preoperative risk assessment grossly underestimates risk. If we are opening the chest, we try to do a complete job. There are times when we've seen double valves and the aortomitral curtain is messed up. We will do what is called a commando operation that involves replacing both the aortic and mitral valve as well as doing a pericardial patch repair of the aortomitral curtain. Do not forget the following. Often, these patients got radiated when they were young and they were growing, so their aortic annuli tend to be small. So in your zest to do a tower, don't put the smallest size tower in these patients because then you are dealing with patient prosthesis mismatch. Often what we've done is we've done, not always, sternotomy-based operations where we are not only doing an AVR, but we are also enlarging the annulus and enlarging the annulus enough so that at least one or two downstream valve-in-valve towers can be made. I told you about pericardial constriction in this context. It is bad. I told you about making sure you look for IMA damage before doing cabbage. The other thing is setting expectations in these patients. What I tell these patients is post-op recovery is going to be long. It is not going to be standard like a standard patient. I just typically tell them to add at least another month before they're going to feel better. The other aspect that often comes up in discussion is transplantation. Cardiac transplant is less attractive because you immunosuppress them and their different malignancies recur. So, so we generally have shied away from doing cardiac transplantations in these patients. That is to, to not say never say never, but, but that has been our general thought process. So to, to wrap things up, to summarize, what, what do I think? How do I look at the future? The future is with evolution of transcatheter technologies. My hope is that we are able to do these things minimally or not semi-invasively and, and, you know, hope for the best. Now, the most important future outlook in my mind, as I alluded to, is if we, the medical community, do our jobs right, radiation-associated heart disease should disappear in 20 years. However, the following questions in my mind remain unanswered. Is there a cardiac dose that is sufficiently safe? Are there cardiac parts that can tolerate radiation worse one part better tolerates than others is is it more dangerous to deliver a high dose radiation to a small cardiac area versus a low dose to a large area and do new chemotherapeutic agents also have potential detrimental effect i don't have all the answers one thing i do know that the radon community recognizes this and is working extremely diligently right now to reduce and eliminate cardiac exposure. So this disease should gradually disappear. The most important thing is prepare the patient and the family for a challenge. Shared decision-making and setting expectations is absolutely crucial. And referral to an experienced provider at an experienced center is absolutely crucial. Thank you so much. By the way, uh, Patrick, you are such a good orator. I have goosebumps. (laughs) <laughs> I've never, yeah i've never heard that before thank you though <laughs> i feel like I'm, oh my god i'm totally wrapped oh my god don't expect this thing from the red here <laughs> no i i just yesterday right i patrick i was telling you i heard your voice for the first time and i was like oh this is gonna be great from you so <laughs> <laughs> yeah on my next trick i'll read the ingredients off my pasta box it's a burnout. <laughs>